Hello and welcome to the Sassy Thoughts podcast. I'm Sam Arnold. And I'm Matt Cameron. Looking forward to chatting to you today, Sam. How you doing? Good. And hey, I just want to shout out real quick, who is bringing us this podcast, Matt? So glad you asked. Sassy Sales Leadership. Check us out. Go to market training for all of you out there in SaaS land. Excellent. Well, hey, Matt, my weather has been great lately. What about yours? Sitting here in Vegas, let me tell you, my friend, spring has sprung. It's sprung through. I feel like we're in summer. So we're in the high 80s already, and I am loving it. I'm still in LA, and I'm loving the weather here too this weekend. Wondering though, I mean, boy, you and I are both such good weather guys. Why don't we do what everyone else in the uh, world of tech is doing and move to Miami? Everybody else, I'm so glad you brought that up. What a surprise that you would bring this topic to me, Sam. So it turns out, it turns out I've done a little bit of research on this topic. And look, there are some people with big names, big voices who have moved to Miami from SS, some very important people in the ecosystem of the VC world and SaaS and startups. But According to LinkedIn stats, my friend, what do you reckon? What percentage, if you were to compare the people that have moved from SF to Miami versus people to say SF to Seattle, LA, or even New York, I mean, are we talking twice as many, three times as many? I mean, if you had to roll your dice and guess, what would you, what would you say? Geez. Well, I mean, I don't think Miami is as popular as these other cities. It's not as safe. So the ones moving to Miami are the ones taking a risk. I don't know, maybe 5%, 10%. Yeah. I mean, you know, you it feels right, right? And so according to LinkedIn, based on where people have moved from, one-tenth of the people have moved to Miami relative to those who have moved to one of those other cities. And I, you know, I was thinking about that. We're, we're thinking specifically tech workers, right? So why would you move to Miami if you're a tech worker, right? You, you hear that Keith or boys moved there and you think, well, you know, Keith's, Keith's a smart guy, done a lot of Cool investments. Maybe, maybe it's the new the new hotness, right? But I was thinking about it. And if I was to move there, there'd be a couple of reasons. One would be it's warm. <laughs> They've got an ocean you can swim in. Have you ever tried to swim in the ocean, San Francisco, Sam? Oh, it's San Francisco. I yeah. have gone in and come back out blue um, a couple of times. It's not really swimmable without a full hazmat suit. I, I tried it. I tried surfing one time back in 2011, having come just from you know Sydney, Australia, and I didn't put booties on. And it was like I'd stepped into ice picks as they attacked my my phalanges. It was not awesome. I was very upset with the experience. So there's one reason I would go to Miami. It, the water is warm. Uh, but the next question is, if you're thinking, you know, if you're a person early to mid-career and you've got the flexibility to move around, because let's be honest, if you've got a cater of kids, if you've got four kids, you're not picking up sticks and moving at a heartbeat are you right so it's it, if you if you're younger low tax sure uh but i think i think people are looking for for more than that right i think the reason why places like new york and whatnot would still have the appeal is that people are looking past the pandemic it's like what next what about my next job where are the startups based right everyone talks about tax but i don't i don't think that's it what do you reckon yeah, I think that might be right. I think too, people are always looking for some way to differentiate themselves also. So there's something to a trend. I mean, if you can really be a part of an up and coming city, I mean, that's like being a part of like an up and coming startup or, you know, being on the forefront of anything, you, it makes you look really smart. But also I think a lot of people in tech are in tech because they are trying to make their fortune, right? Like they're not looking for the easiest job. They're looking for a job that, you know, is basically a lottery ticket a lot of the time. And so I see the appeal for younger people to, to have the same attitude towards 
the cities are choosing. There's a sense, I think, that San Francisco's already happened. You know, it's already happened. And people have already been making their claim here, staking their claims here for, for so long that I think the idea that being able to go to a place like Miami and be one of the early adopters, I can see where people would find that really appealing as well. I've got an early adopter idea. So thinking about San Francisco, why would you live there and all the things you've just talked about? Well, proximity to cool things, right? What about Tahoe and skiing? What about world-class hiking? Um, fantastic restaurants, all that good stuff, right? You know where else you can do that, Sam? Gee, I don't know. Las Vegas, baby. Las Vegas. I mean, most people don't know this, but Mount Charleston. So where I live, Mount Charleston uh, is a, a ski location, which is about 45 minutes from where I live on the outskirts of Vegas, right? Uh, 15 minutes from where I live, you've got Red Rock Canyon, fantastic hiking. And then, of course, you've got Vegas, all the entertainment. If you're a younger person, you want access to fantastic restaurants, entertainment, and let's face it, fantastic networking because people fly in here from conferences all around the world. No one's talking about it. I'm talking about it. You hear it here first. Tony Shea started it. Um, rest in peace, Tony, uh, with Zappos here and really did a lot to invest in downtown Las Vegas. And it hasn't really kicked off yet. I'm telling you, Sam, it makes no sense to me. And so come one, come all. I think that Vegas could be a thing. I don't know. We should get this podcast sponsored by Las Vegas. I actually, my mind about Vegas was changed recently. I came to see you, as you know, Matt, back in January. And yeah. My memory. Oh, yeah. That events, PTSD, perhaps. <laughs> that, that was me that showed up. Uh, yeah. The Red Rock Canyon. I mean, there's a lot of areas around Las Vegas I was never familiar with, even though I've been there several times for conferences. So, but hey, we don't have to keep going on for this, this free ad for Las Vegas. I think the idea here is that. Not as many people are going to Miami as you might be led to believe by the headlines. And there are many other viable places too. We'll see. I don't know. I think Miami is pretty low on my list. I think Las Vegas may be a little higher, but boy, I would love it if somewhere like maybe Bozeman, Montana, or some other really nice kind of outdoorsy city would kind of blow up a little bit more and make me feel safer about moving there. Cause I would love to live in a place like that. Well, that's what happened to Boulder, uh, you know, and it's a beautiful place to live and, you know, obviously suffered some recent tragedy, uh, but Boulder, it really is fabulous place, fabulous people. Uh, and it's kind of random that, that it happened there. So you, you got to love it. But you, you said that people come into tech uh, for a number of reasons, one prime of which is uh, getting rich, right? Which, which really leads quite nicely. I think the next thing we wanted to talk about were these, these new valuations, right? And it, it's hard. I was doing some research on this and it depends which way you slice and dice it. I don't like talking about series A, series B valuations, because that's just kind of an, an arbitrary label, right? Um, the question for me is, um, you know, first round, second round, and, 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 and traction, I guess, at valuation. There's been some crazy stuff. Like, you know, one of my favorites, Sam, is Clubhouse, which value, got valued at $100 million last year, pre-revenue with a few thousand uh, users, right? And uh, and just because I like to keep throwing stones at those folks, did you see that Facebook has gone public beta with Hotline? You know I mean? did not see that. Have you had access to it yet? Uh, I've not, and I've I've a, a great FOMO, great FOMO. Uh, so they have either video or not. It's recordable, 
which is which is a nice thing. Um, but also something that seems like a big miss for me anyway with with, um, with Clubhouse is you can use emojis and ask questions via chat and stuff, uh, text and stuff like this. So it feels like you're participating, right? Twitter Spaces is out there, and there's this really um, cool one that sounds to me like Clubhouse on steroids. I'm going to pronounce it wrong because I haven't heard anyone say it, but it's it's spelled L E H E R, like Leher. Um, it might even be Lee Her, who knows? Uh, in India, someone will tell us. Uh, and they have both audio and video clubs. That sounds a lot like Clubhouse in India. I don't know if you've noticed, Sam, but they've got a fair population. Yeah, oh, yeah. Population. Yeah, I've been there. I've been there a couple of times. Quite, quite a few people live there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the point of this, though, the point of this, the, the crazy valuations, I, I, I want to bring it up because it's something that I think catches people out. The valuations today don't reflect the... Uh, the ridiculous increase in valuation doesn't reflect a ridiculous progression in terms of the state of traction of the investee companies. What's happening, from my observation anyway, is you've got so many more multi-billion dollar funds out there. You've got Tiger Global, Andreessen, Insight Partners, GGVC, Excel, all great companies scrapping over early access to companies. And they've got so much money to deploy that they can put you know, outsized checks way earlier into these companies. And I think people are being fooled into thinking that their company is somehow worth that. Does that make sense? Like, where, whereas last time, you know, you, you, that a smaller company, seed companies would put in a check for 5 million or, or a million or whatever it is, right? And they'd do it at 20 million or 30 million pre or post. But when you, you know, who was it? Tiger Global, and you've got a $3.7 billion fund to deploy, and you want to get access to these deals early, you go, sure, all right, you check for 20 million at a $100 million post, because they don't care, because they can write so many of those checks. And my concern is that founders think their companies are actually worth that, and that makes it really, really hard. It's a lot of pressure on you for raising the next round at that sort of valuation. But the thing I really care about is employees getting drunk on the stock, you know? When a founder when a founder tells you, hey, we've just raised X million at a hundred million dollar valuation with the next hotness, I don't know. I think I think it's a false positive for a lot of companies. Well, do you think that it might be benefiting the founders? I mean, the people that are trying to trade the employee stock for employee loyalty, I mean, don't they benefit? Uh, it seems like everyone benefits from creating this illusion. Of value and the only ones who might actually be falling for it are the employees, as you say. Yeah. Well, I also think that um, first-time founders don't understand what they've just the bed they've just made for themselves to lie in, right? Because if I've got a hundred million dollar valuation, the growth assumption for my next round is through the roof, right? Uh, and and then trying to hire savvy employees, um, seasoned executives, they understand this. So if they're getting the options at $100 million instead of $20 million, they're going to think twice about joining the company. Um, and the thing that worries me is that um, newer employees don't understand that and they think they're going to get rich. And the likelihood of you getting a 10x multiple on $100 million at an early stage company, I mean, I don't know the numbers, but I know they're low. You know, something I have never seen before, you, you have Glassdoor that talks about what your salaries are in different places. I mean, there are all these other kinds of platforms that are trying to set, for example, benchmarks on compensation, but I'm not really hearing too much around the value of stock or even tools out there to help you understand what's the what are the likely scenarios 
of your exit from your employer or a prospective employer based on their offer, comparing it to what has happened in the past. I'm imagining, for example, could you have a kind of Glassdoor-like platform where individuals are sharing not just what their salaries were, but you know what were their stock offers? What was the, the strike price? How did it actually plan out? This, okay, they were acquired for this much by these investors, and this was ultimately my payout. I mean, isn't that the kind of information people really want to know? Why is no one sharing it? That must be out there somewhere. If it's not out there, if it's out there right now, please write it and tell us. Uh, Matt at SaucySalesLeadership.com. You can just tell, I want to hear about that. If it doesn't exist, it should exist. We need to build it. You're exactly right, Sam. The big issue is when people get their stock up front, as you and I both know, usually founders are pretty cagey and you won't find out any of that till to, to your point until it's exited. And I would love to see that. Let's see those benchmarks out there uh, at various levels and find out what's realistic. Um, I, there's some weirdness going on, right? now like for example um uh very interesting company on deck um some of you may have heard about the cohort-based learning community they just raised uh 20 million dollars uh recently and they boasted that they had 180 investors 180 wow. now look i won't claim to know what the valuation is but i'm gonna, gonna guess it was a good one and um wait was this a, a gofundme or a kickstarter it sounds like it, doesn't it? <laughs> it's, it's exactly what it sounds like, but it's not. And what it is, it's because uh, the investors want early access to their um, their founder cohorts, right? Because everyone's fighting so hard to get that next YC level company. And these kind of, these guys kind of like an alternative YC. It's interesting. They bring the very interesting companies in these cohorts um, from 180 investors. I mean, maybe maybe that's a new thing. So I've got a theory actually around that. I've got a theory that these smaller funds are going to have to almost be like a value-added syndicate. Because if I look at Andreessen and, and uh, Insight uh, Partners, they have unbelievably strong what they would call platform support for their port codes, right? So you need hiring support, we've got professional executive search people. You need go to markets, we've got the best operators who now work for us. How that so like and they're writing the massive checks. So if you're a smaller fund, how the hell do you get in there? Well, I think the way you get in there is by creating a really differentiated niche value proposition set of partners or or venture partners or operating partners that are in there that have been there, done that, that say, look, allow us to invest sidecar style. So Andreessen leads or whomever else leads, right? But let us co-invest with you because we'll bring this special source. Um, and you know, I, I've, I've a vested interest in saying that because I'm actually part of an angel list syndicate called Antipodes. And Antipodes, for those of you who don't know, talks about is, is about Australia and New Zealand. That's the region. And our supposed value add is that every single one of us has either spent you know, five to 10 years in the States as an operator and now either still lives here or is back in that region. And if we invest, then clearly we're going to open up our networks, our partnership, channel relationships, all that stuff for Australian New Zealand companies wanting to come here. So we, you know, we claim that's a differentiator. And as a result, you know, we're getting into a few deals. I think, I think that's the only way for the smaller funds to survive because they certainly can't compete on price. Well, here's a question. I mean, I've just been reading a lot on Twitter lately. I have this kind of weird voyeuristic uh, tendency uh, to observe from the outside what VCs get up to. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh, thank God you said VCs. I was really freaking out. I thought we we're going to have to cut off the mic for a second. Yeah. Carry on. <laughs> yeah. We'll edit out the first thing I said. 
But I think what we'll, I'm curious about those, all these VCs talking about trying to get in with companies. It's very much a, a buyer's market or, or a seller's market. It's the market where it's harder to find places to put your giant checks um, than it is to, to get a giant check if you are a company that fits a certain profile. I just wonder, are there VCs that are paying for access uh, to companies for, or paying for the privilege of finding out uh, or, or getting privileged you know, meetings, for example, with some of these hot new startups? I've never heard of a, any kind of bribery scandal around that, but and there's so much money at stake. It seems like a no-brainer. Let's make one up, Sam. Let's make one up. All right. <laughs> we will take any unsubstantiated claim that you write to us and then talk about it. How does that sound? Perfect. Uh, honestly, Let's do it. I, I think here's the thing, you know, it it, it, it it comes back to networks, doesn't it? Right. Early access to deals is who knows who, who trusts who. Second time founders going back to the people who supported them last time. Um, and uh, and yeah, but um, hey, let's start a rumor. Sounds Sounds great. Well, that might get us into some legal trouble and... You know, silly mistakes are known to get people into legal trouble, right. including using, some of the, <laughs> what's that? I'm using a false name on this podcast anyway. You know that. Oh, of course. Well, you know, this even happened, it happens to the best of us, Matt. And it happened recently to our friends over at Google when one of their top lawyers accidentally sent an unredacted filing or unredacted emails, included those in their filing and revealed a whole bunch of sensitive information, namely around programs and stuff. And, you know, I don't really know much about ad tech or markets. That wasn't really the, the interesting angle to me. This is all revealed in the Wall Street Journal. The interesting angle to me of the story about Google's high paid lawyer accidentally leaking out information is that, boy, this has happened to me before. Have you ever tried to send a contract or a pricing proposal, for example, to a customer and you maybe gave away a little bit too much information and really shot yourself in the foot. Has that happened to you before in your sales career, Matt? You know, not that I'm going to admit, but I, I do recall uh, email threads where, you know, you'll to and fro internally on discount approvals. And then somehow that thread remains in the response to the prospect. And that, that, that leaves a pit in my stomach as I think about it. Oh man, this has happened to me before. Accidentally maybe forwarding a support thread verbatim to a customer you know, this kind of, of course, the stakes for us were a lot lower, but I wonder why this problem hasn't been solved. I know in my line of work, I sell, you know, software to engineers to help them code better, faster, et cetera. And it's table stakes to look in your code for vulnerabilities, things that, for example, look like security keys, maybe keys to your AWS instance or something scary like that. You don't want to accidentally leave that visible in your source code. So there's all these pieces of tech and software that looks for those kinds of patterns and surfaces it to you to try to avoid anything uh, too terrible happening. But we don't seem to have that, do we, for email and regular day-to-day -day communications? Yeah, it's interesting, you know, because certainly for things like credit cards and, um, you know, tax file numbers, uh, all that, all that social, that's good stuff. That's a solved problem. You know, the companies like Microsoft 365, they've got a, you know, they call it data loss prevention policy, right? So your IT department uh, sets it up and says that if you see any of this stuff, you create a warning message for the user and say, are you sure you want to send this? That sort of carry on. Uh, and then in certain cases, of course, we'll, we'll send a duplicate copy to IT to let them know that this has gone out there. It occurs to me with all the natural language processing technology we've got right now, you know, we could, this, this is a problem that could be solved. And I, I like your idea. I think it's a, 
I think is a good one. And if it doesn't exist, and I'm pretty sure it doesn't, um, if, if, if there's something from, you know, you could, you could group as, as we do, we group users, right? You've got the sales group, you've got the product group. Um, and maybe if you've got the sales group and, and the word discount and whatever, it just pops a warning and says, if there's more than X many people on this thread, they're like, are you sure you want to send this? Or whatever it happens to be. So yeah, that's an interesting one and it should get fixed. Someone should do it immediately. Yeah. And of course the next phase will be real time, right? As you're having a phone call, some kind of chat bot coming up, reminding you helpfully that what you've just uttered is against your HR policies. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's totally doable because you've got these great technologies out there like uh, Gong and Chorus and whatnot that uh, are, are basically on the verge of doing real-time coaching, like in the call, they're giving you sales playbook, like, oh, next thing you should talk about is this, or hey, you're talking too much, shut up. So it's a small leap. It's a small leap to do that. Yeah. Oh boy. I, I think I would benefit greatly from that. You know, that goes against privacy though. Of course, everyone's really concerned about privacy these days. And this is evidenced by a new iOS release coming out with Apple actually enforcing uh, privacy transparency. They're calling it app tracking transparency. And the idea is that there's now a kind of global permission system so that uh, if a uh, one of the apps that you've downloaded wants to take your, you know, your, your information, your metadata, and use that to track you around the web, to give you personalized ads, kind of have these unified profiles of their customers and uh, well, you're going to have to give them an explicit thumbs up on that, or they're not going to be able to do it. But I'm not really sure if this is quite the right approach. But first, I want to hear from you, Matt. Like, what do you think about this privacy movement, this kind of hesitation to share metadata and so on? Do you have a, a sense about it? I think we've, I think we're strangled the golden goose because unfortunately, through some either lax policy or just um, hacks, um, people have been unnerved. You know, uh, we we read about um, LinkedIn data being uh, uh, leaked out, um, Facebook data. You had some personal experience with that, right? Oh yeah. So Facebook, and I'm not really sure about the story. I haven't read too much about it. I know that what happened was, in general, Facebook's at some point had a bunch of personal information that got consolidated and leaked. Uh, but it was 500 million users, and I was one of those. So my phone number and my uh, address and my name, that got, that got out there. And boy, I get so many spam texts now every single day. And this is happening even before this leak. This leak was just the latest in a string of these uh, identity leakings that I get notifications on. And uh, I'm, I'm thinking about actually changing my phone number now as a result. But at the same time, it's happened so often that it's hard to care too much. And I wonder if that's what's happening to the rest of us, if we're just being conditioned to be apathetic about all of these information leaks. And, and the same thing will happen when we start having to give explicit opt-in on tracking us around the web. If it comes up frequently enough, it's just one more thing that you're going to mindlessly accept. And I'm not sure if it's going to have the effect that privacy advocates hope that it will. Yeah, I agree. But, but I'll just start by saying, I'm sorry about all those texts. I'll stop doing it immediately. I don't want you to feel bad about it. Uh, I'm still waiting yeah, for those pills I, to kick in, Matt. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think the, the thing that gets me actually, as you know, as I was thinking about this topic was one thing I didn't expect was that people would allow uh, social profile access via API, right? So um, the most recent one was announced uh, today by, or yesterday by Clubhouse and someone accused them of, of leaking data. They didn't leak data. They didn't get hacked. They actually have a, an API that allows you to see the usernames and the social handles and whatever else. And I don't know, that for me, yeah, I really don't want to feel like I'm picking on Clubhouse because I'm sure plenty of other people do it, but it, it feels a bit icky. 
that you can you can kind of just you know plug plug in plug the hose in and just suck all those profiles out on mass. I'm not sure why that would need to be done. So anyway, I I, I think that you know there's always that argument convenience over um, uh, conservatism or privacy, I should say, um, and you've got to trade one off the other, don't you? Convenience for privacy. Well, I hope that your investor group is not trying to get in on the next round for Clubhouse because you're going to have some explaining to do. <laughs> I tell you what, at that valuation, I, I think we're probably we're probably out. Anyway, you know what? It is time is that time of the session. We get to talk about cool stuff that you have found. Sam, tell us about some cool new tech. We got really got to get a theme song for this segment. I don't know. I'm going to do 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 do. Okay. All right, Matt. Well, today I got a couple of real fun, real fun little companies for you. One of them, you know, have you ever, Matt, I don't know if you recall this, do you remember having a hard time adulting? Dude, I, I, I have a hard time listening to that word. Is that good enough? Adulting. So yeah, I really hate that word too, but okay. It is a problem though, right after college, especially those of us who maybe didn't have the most financially responsible parents, um, or back you up. Let me back you up. What <laughs> okay, about please. who didn't go to college? So, you know, yeah. Oh, it's true. Yep. It's true. I not going to college. Well, I left home at 17. Uh, so I was living independently at 17. And I mean, adulting, are you kidding me? Yeah. It's true. Yeah. People come from all kinds of backgrounds. Some folks have, uh, you know, the, the advantage of a, of a home life and upbringing situation where they um, enter adulthood fully knowing how to do Fun things like pay taxes, uh, budget, uh, get a job, vote, uh, register to vote, like all of the things that you associate with being an adult in the world. And then other people, you know, so far have had to learn it the hard way, but a new company is trying to solve that problem. It's called Real World. So R-E-A-L World, one word. They just raised 3.4 million bucks to solve this with an app. And so the idea is you have a sort of knowledge base for subjects that cater to you know young people entering the uh, the world of adulthood and then having a community around it as well to give one another advice uh income taxes saving you know early adulthood kind of stuff this seems like really cool to me i, I really hope that this takes off so the sound, I, I really like the idea uh my only concern of is there any ickiness behind it in terms of um, monetization, like, is it, you know, is this going to be a lead gen platform, like one of these sort of insurance broking type things, or what, what do you know about how they're going to pay the bills? Well, from what I understand, they offer free memberships, but then there's also some kind of membership I haven't really dug into where universities and employers seem to be offering it. So I really think that what they're trying to do is partner more with universities and employers and sell, you know, large batches of memberships that then get distributed to their employees and their uh, students, which maybe seems smart. Uh, I think, I don't know if it's premium enough content that's solving enough problems. I could see them also partnering with maybe some of these newer banks. Uh, you know, there's a lot of these content plays around helpful articles on finance, for example, where it's always into being sponsored by, you know, Robin hood or some other kind of new, uh, finance platform, maybe like mint, like Intuit and so on can get, gets involved with that. Uh, I think for now though, they're trying the, the, distribution through universities and employers. 
Yeah, well, I, 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 I hope they do well by doing good because that sounds like a really good uh, uh, idea and opportunity. There are so many transition to work, transition to higher education, uh, not-for-profits out there that are working with folks that, that don't have that familial support or background um, that would allow them to understand the pathways. Um, so this sounds good. And it, so the, the website's realworldplaybook.com by the look of it. Um, so yeah, that's interesting. I, I love it. I love the idea. Good, good yeah. find. I like it too. I think I'd have more in my savings account if I had had access to this like five or 10 years ago. Well, Matt, real world is great. I have an app for you that's a little bit less great. It's called Yat. Have you heard of Yat? Yat. Oh no, the problem with Yat is just immediately word association. I think of scat, but go on, carry on. Oh, wow. Maybe there's something a little Freudian there, but uh, we won't get into that. So Yat is, it's an ad that's been all over my Instagram and it is trying to sell the idea that you should pay them some money. Uh, It looks like about maybe $30, $40. And you can claim for yourself an emoji-based username, right? An emoji-based username. So you can imagine like you know, three, it looks like they, they sell three, four, and five emoji strings. So you could have, you know, heart, eye, rocket ship, and that could be you. And then presumably what they're trying to do is link into other services so that you can, uh, they can be the ultimate arbiter, if you will, of the emoji-based usernames of mankind and other services like Facebook, Twitter, Venmo, et cetera, would, um, I guess, at some point partner with them. I don't really understand what they're going to do with this, but they claim people are spending upwards of $100,000, $200,000 in auctions to get the best Yat emoji usernames. What do you think about that? I need to hear more because that on a scale of one to ridiculous, this sounds freaking ridiculous, Sam, because I don't understand how you protect it. Because I, I know that, you know, going to going to Twitter, when Twitter got going, you know, if I wanted to be, uh, you know, at Matt Cameron at Twitter, uh, I could not be at Matt Cameron at Twitter uh, because someone else already claimed that username. But could I be, um, you know, Matt Cameron uh, at Skype? Damn straight, I could. It was available, right? Uh, so the idea that 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 Yat could sort of own this across all of the social platforms and ecosystems, uh, it sounds implausible to me. But I'm sure there's a ton I'm not thinking of. I don't know. Have you? Do you see it? I don't see. Oh it. man, it just looks like such a scam. But it would not surprise me if somehow this is just the era that we live in now, uh, where people can just decide to be the authority on emoji-based usernames, and they can sort of market their way to success with that strategy. I see it maybe working, but I agree with you. I don't understand how you can just declare your, yourself the king of emojis and get away with it. Uh, I mean, Apple could could easily have emoji-based iMessage usernames. I mean, there's a million different ways this could go. And uh, I think no matter what, I, I would not be surprised if the founder of this company ends up very wealthy, regardless of uh, maybe how well off the guy who paid $288,000 for an eyeball and a basketball. Uh, I think he might end up a little bit less well off. Damn it. You know, and it's just, it's just, I, I'm just worried I'm falling into a, a, a demographic that's becoming increasingly irrelevant because it just makes me think about the company that decides they are the licensor and realtor for, uh, you know, uh, acreage on the moon, uh, where, you know, with blockchain. <laughs> With blockchain, Sam, I can prove that you own it uh, according to my title company. Um, everybody else can look at it, right? Everybody can look at it, but the value 
like any other NFT, is that you can prove you own it, right? Uh, and actually, you know, it, it makes me think, um, for those of you who are familiar with the twinkly lights on the, um, the, the art installation on the San Francisco Bay Bridge, right? That was a temporary thing. And the way they funded to keeping it going was they sold individual lights. So you could get a certificate and say, well, you know, Sam owns light number 34 on column B right there. Now I can almost guarantee they sold your light, Sam, seven times. Uh, but if NFTs have been around as a concept back then, maybe they couldn't. And so I just find all of this terribly confusing um, and it all just falls in the same bucket of old guy doesn't get it for me. So where I'm at. Well, I think on that note, Matt, we've had a great episode today. What do you think? I think we've had fun. It's awesome. I hope folks have uh, been provoked into some some thinking. Um, be uh, don't get drunk on your stock. Uh, there's some cool new toys out there. Uh, privacy or not to privacy. Uh, adulting is still a stupid word. That's how I feel about it. Sam, until next week, have a great one, and I'll look forward to chatting to you in about seven days' time. That's right. Bye bye. <laughs> <laughs>